Well, Yasmin Sharif, the Executive Director of Education Can't Wait, the United Nations Global Fund for Education in Emergencies and Protracted Crises, is spearheading a global movement that delivers education to those left furthest behind in crisis settings. Well, under her leadership, in just a few short years, the ECW has mobilised over $1.5 billion and reached more than 7 million crisis-affected children with holistic, quality education, putting foundational learning outcomes such as literacy at the centre of their mission. Well, Yasmin's a human rights lawyer with 30 years experience with the UN. She's been working in war zones and crises. She works at ECW's HQ in New York and regularly conducts missions to the field to take stock of the needs and ECW's responses in crisis-affected countries. As a global advocate for the right to education, a thought leader in her sector and global advocate, Ms. Sharif is regularly featured in the media. She's the author of the book, The Case for Humanity, An Extraordinary Session. And in 2020, she was awarded the Global Educator Award in the US. And in 2022, she received, on behalf of Education Can't Wait, the prestigious Mother Teresa Award. When ECW was launched in 2016, 75 million children and youth did not have access to the safety, protection, hope and opportunity of an education due to crises worldwide. That number has spiked to well over 222 million, according to a new study released by the ECW last year. With COVID-19, the crisis in Ukraine, rises in climate change-related displacement and other wars and conflicts raging across the globe, this number is expected to continue to rise. So I'm honoured and thrilled to welcome Yasmin to the Beyond Words podcast. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here with you. All the way from New York. As you know, we're in sunny Australia, sunny today. Now, what I find fascinating is, first of all, I know you're, you operate at the very infrastructure of what needs to be done, but you also work at the coalface of humanity, where challenges are often dire and extreme. How do you triage your priorities? Because you have so many when I look at what's on your slate. Well, I mean, there are more than 222 million children and adolescents who do not access a quality education around the globe. But we prioritize the children and adolescents who are in um, situations of armed conflict, climate-induced disasters, or forced displacement. That includes refugees. And um, within them, uh, those who are left first behind, and that's often the girls, children with um, disabilities and um, communities that are um, ostracized or marginalized in one another way. But it, it's it's very hard to prioritize amongst those who are left behind because they are already in the darkest spot of the globe under the most difficult circumstances. So you try to, to do as many as you can, as much as you have funding to, to cater to, to them. And so is there a particular process that you have of putting those into certain priorities because there are so many? I mean, how do you even begin? It's such a massive task. Well, first of all, we don't sit in New York and determine who is the most vulnerable. And I have spent many years myself working in war-torn countries with refugees and, and, and active armed conflict. And there's nothing worse than some of us in faraway land. 
So we, uh, we left and we are gathered by our colleagues on the ground who works in the United Nations or in civil society and the ministers of education. And they have a process income to do needs assessment and uh, then they determine who are the most at risk or um, the least capacities to attend, uh, possibilities to attend a school. And then we zoom in on them. But of course, if you have more funding available, we could take everyone. It's, it's very hard to choose between who suffers more and who suffers mm, Exactly, more. yeah. What I think is interesting about what you say is, first of all, you have to negotiate and navigate the political sphere in order to get into certain countries. So you're you're faced with dealing with often maybe reticent governments, conflict situations, that, that is challenging. So what are some of the strategies around that? And I'm assuming that it re- involves a lot of mediation and good communication, which I have no doubt you're very skilled at. Thank you. Well, um, first of all, because we are part of the United Nations system, um, we are hosted by UNICEF, but we, we serve the entire UN system and civil society organizations. So when you are a part of the UN, you have access to these countries um, as an international civil servant. And that's that's coordinated with that our UN colleagues in country and us. So that gives us an advantage. But then you come into these countries and um, you often have to deal with countries that are sort of carved up. Um, some controlled by militia groups, warring parties. And again, we rely very much on our colleagues who are working there day in, day out, who have built those relationships and um, who ensures that we get access. And, and that allows us or them to travel to those areas. The most important is that we can reach those children. Take a country like Central African Republic, where you have multiple uh, militia groups. And we are able to reach children in those territories thanks to the access established by our colleagues who work in the country. So yeah. a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I, I went out and led the first all women mission to Afghanistan in 2021 after the Taliban takeover. And um, then it was my job as the leader of the mission to speak to the Taliban. Uh, and because the UN allowed us to speak from the, on the informal basis with them, I, I went and, and met with them to discuss the right for girls to have education. Um, so, yeah, you negotiate, you you often get access. The, the question is, can you get the message? I think that's the one of the challenge. Because mm. it's not always decided by one or two persons. It's, it's the policy. And, and it's pretty good. It's interesting that you just, you know, that vision of you um, having to negotiate with Taliban male members who were, who were basically quite clear that women shouldn't have education. In fact, I saw um, I saw some footage yesterday coming out where all the schoolgirls were basically being, it would appear, being poisoned in their classrooms in Iran. It was actually the most terrifying footage, these young girls literally coming out unable to breathe and there was some indication, unproven yet, but certainly there would be a strong sense that they were being poisoned by some something in the air because they were trying to just be at school. I mean, it's just extraordinary what some of these regimes are doing. And so for you to have the courage to go in and negotiate or talk to some of these quite ferocious and reticent leaders 
how do you find the courage and do you think things are getting better? Certainly in that situation, it's getting worse. Well, um, in the wrongest position, we, we don't have any investments there because it's not at war. Uh, but in Afghanistan, um, speaking with, a, with the Taliban leadership, I have worked in Afghanistan in the early 90s, so I know the country very well. I did work there. I did work in many, many war situations. And I guess that's when you get your training to be able to speak mm-hmm. to a um, broad um, array of different partners and not always government partners because if you don't do that, you won't be able to help those who serve. So you develop those skills, I would say, there. But so for me, meeting with the Taliban did not scare me in any way. I am comfortable in Afghanistan. I, I was there when I was in my 20s working. But the tragedy is that even if those I speak to agree with us, that yes, God should have a right to education, they're not always the ones that make the decisions. The decisions, decisions are made elsewhere. Uh, Maybe most religious leaders, um, not political leaders, nor technical leaders. So all you can do then is to keep advocating and keep being persistent. Uh, I mean, human rights law by training. And mm-hmm. um, you know, with the UN charter in your hand and the human rights background, and uh, you need to be a human rights lawyer for that, but anyone working in the UN, you know, can step down on fundamental human rights. And education is, is one of them, one of the most important ones, because education is a key to unlocking all other rights without literacy skills, without going to school. It's very difficult to claim the, the remaining spectrum of your human rights. So you have to have a strong moral conviction and, and then you stand firmly by that. And, and then you find ways of, of getting that message across. And I can say in Afghanistan, although many have, schools have closed down, we work with local organizations and national organizations who have negotiated access in certain provinces and districts, still delivering education to clubs. That's interesting because how is that? So is that under the radar or is that something that? So I'm I'm not clear. How did they? I mean, obviously it's politically you've got you have to be cautious. But what I find first of all, it, it, do you find it extraordinary that in this day and age, there are still so many countries willing to prevent education because they see that as such a tool of power, which it actually is. Is it still mind-blowing for you? You've been doing this for 30 years in various forms. Well, I can say education for girls. Afghanistan is the only country on earth that does not permit girls to attend secondary school and tertiary education. So that's an absolutely exceptional diversion from basic human rights in this Mm. country. It's unacceptable. Unacceptable. Uh, Oh, yes. More than that. And And I think that that the whole world will stand by that. And I think that the ethics and, and bans that are coming out, knowing the source, may not come from a place of educated people or an educated person or an educated leader. There are several Taliban members who, who, who are educated and who want their daughters to go to school, but they're not necessarily the ones that make a decision. Mm-hmm. But it's absolutely outrageous. Now, I think you said something very important, and that is that. Education is, is a way of, of controlling power. Because if you have an educated population, you will have critical thinking. You have access to communication means, uh, access to communicate around the globe, mm-hmm. think critically, form your own opinions. Uh, it's very dangerous for totalitarian systems and dictatorships. 
Um, but does it mean that we should stop advocating for it? No. On the contrary, we have to put in more forces, more resistance towards it. We, we, we never succumb to uh, violations of human rights, but there are different ways of communicating it. Yes. And so, as a, you know, as a human rights lawyer, you've got many tools at your disposal to navigate this, as you mentioned. How important is it understanding the legal complexities in your workspace? So obviously, whether it's on the ground, dealing with local government or local council, or because a lot of it is wading, as you said, through the bureaucracy. And while United Nations, obviously, you're part of that support system, at the end of the day, when you're dealing, as you said, whether it's the Taliban or whoever, do you find that understanding, and obviously their legal systems differ, clearly, in some form, but has that been an important tool for you? To be honest with you, not really. Interesting. Because, yeah, I wondered that. Yeah. So, you know, everyone gets their law degree and, you know, I'm, I have no. family members of a law, but I'm interested. I have to be frank with you. I have learned more uh, about human rights working in crisis context and seeing the suffering than I ever learned in, a, in an assembly hall at university. There, there are moral dimensions, ethical dimensions, human dimensions. There, there are so many dimensions. You can't walk around with the law can say, this is the law. Well, it, that's not how you communicate with people who may not know what the Constitution is, who may not know about human rights. There's a lot of lack of awareness. And it's not a legal work. It's, it's more of a practical work that we are doing. I don't operate as a lawyer when I work. Actually, never really do. Yeah, when I work. Yeah. Very, very exceptional situations. But human rights is, is, are so easily easy to, to, to grasp and understand. Mm. You don't need to be a lawyer for that. To a right to an education. But that, that is, it's, it's so fundamental. Normal. It's fundamental. You don't need to have a legal mind for that. You just need to be a human being. And, and what I have seen is often that, as you said, the, the deprivation or, or oppression of human rights, such as education, is it's either because it takes gives you a chance to control the population, but it's also very much because there's no funding. We speak about some of the poorest countries on the globe. We speak about the Sahel, for instance. Burkina Faso, Mali, Nigeria, Nigeria. These are very poor countries. And there are also there are a lot of internal strife and, and conflict across the region. So when they do the national budget, they say, okay, let's put it into the military because we have to fight the terrorists, we put it into security, we put it in. And there's no money left from their education. Budget. Yeah. So, you know, you're dealing with so many things. They're trying to protect the country. I think Nigeria, we have Bukharan, which is a terrorist group that is trying to close down schools for girls, not to attend school. And where's that? that- in Nigeria, in Nigeria. Here you have sub-Saharan Africa. And the, the government there have to first fight the incursions of terrorist groups that are trying to close the schools for girls. And at the same time, they have to, you know, have a national budget that allows for education. So the, there are so many complex dynamics there. And that's why international aid is so very important in these situations. Because there's only so much funding available in the national budget and so much. So, you know, we have to share. We do not, we or have need to, to share with those who don't have. And, and that's why education cannot wait. Our role is to catalyze and attract a lot of financial resources 
in the international aid budgets that are meant to go out internationally and shift the priorities towards education. Mm-hmm. If you invest in education for refugees for these countries, uh, we can bring peace. We can bring um, an educated generation as engineers, doctors, teachers, nurses, and we can prevent another collapse into conflict or support peace building and definitely giving help to all these millions of young children who have nothing else but war and conflict around them. Well, what you're really talking about is all the collateral damage that happens over generations when there's a war-torn crisis or there's there's conflict. You're really saying that it's it, even if the conflict stops, you've got all this collateral damage of people who are not educated and haven't got Absolutely. the resources to to recover. And that's really common mm. in most war-torn situations. So the fact that the ECW has raised so much funding recently and you've been spearheading that, what you, I mean, the, the figures are really quite staggering. You know, when I look at this, um, and I mentioned this in, in the intro, but $1.5 billion, you know, that you've raised your organisation and you've reached more than 7 million crisis-affected children, um, that is an extraordinary feat. What what do you see as the pivotal reason or way that you've accessed those funds? Because clearly people are very supportive and countries are jumping on board because they see the vision. Well, I think, first of all, there is a very strong education community. I mean, I think that they, they have come together over the years and they run it together to create education and wait because education in emergencies and Turkey crisis was actually underfunded in humanitarian responses. Mm. So when there were investments in education, it would be in countries that were development countries without conflict, or if you had a humanitarian situation, the allocations would go to water, tents, food. And of course, these are very important commodities. However, you're not empowering children and young people through water and food alone. There has to be a pathway for them, and because conflicts and crises are protracted, take Afghanistan. That's been going on since the late um, 70s. Mm. Um, take the Democratic Republic of the Congo since the 60s. Um, a refugee today, the average time that they are refugees is 17 years. 17 so, years. So that's why the title is Education Cannot Wait. It cannot wait until peace has arrived cannot wait until everyone has returned home. They need education during 17 years, 20 years, 30 years, or else we have generations that loads out and we are always supplying them with the most uh, you know, water, tents, and food. They need it, but that is not going to empower them and build their future. It's not sustainable moving forward. I mean, they end up, as we just mentioned, with with a legacy, actually, that is if they're not educated and that carries through to the next generation. So I think it's a very important role. How do you see, do you think they're making, are are we getting traction? Do you feel like this is starting to be effective in certain countries, obviously? Yes. I mean, first of all, I mean, at the global level, we are seeing more and more investments in education. I think that has contributed to education cannot wait. Uh, resource mobilization. Uh, we saw last year the U.S. Secretary General convened the, the Transformative Education Summit. It's the first one ever in the U.N. history, which mm. is a great time of uh, the United Nations 
uh, placing education uh, at the center at the of the forefront. Mm. As, as you know, an investment that can help us achieve all sustainable development goals and the and the objectives of the UN Charter. So that that has been tremendous, and we see we also see many of our countries, our top uh, contributing um, strategic donor partners, being Germany, the UK, the United States, Norway, uh, Denmark, um, and many more. We have. 24 strategic donor partners, Leo, one of the private sector partners, Portugal's another one. The, the fact that they are coming in so strongly and uh, scaling up the resources uh, through education and way shows that there is, a, uh, there is a commitment out there. Um, then, of course, we are faced with COVID 19, we are faced with uh, the war in Ukraine. Ukraine, yeah. And and how yeah. is tell, tell me how that's impacted the the edu- the education trajectory? How how are those two? I mean, obviously the pandemic would have been quite challenging because trying to maintain those missions through that time. Yeah, I mean for COVID nineteen, what we did at Education Cannot Wait is because everything we do, we do, we don't look at patients as a virtue. Uh, we we are very impatient sense that we cannot wait and we will not be convinced otherwise during COVID-19 we actually um, we took our vaccinations we followed the protocol for COVID-19 but we traveled to these countries to show solidarity with them and continuously investing in them we didn't stay at home waiting for COVID-19 and the same goes for any conflict we go straight into the fire Uh, for Ukraine we have also made big investments in Ukraine of course, more resources are needed. We are doing a multi-year investment there. Uh, mm-hmm. We traveled to Moldova. We have been both to Ukraine and Moldova, where which is not an EU country, EU member, where we also invested working with the Ministry of Education in all the refugees surrounding in Moldova. But so, so you know, any country that is in war is it's our responsibility. So we have mm-hmm. um, um, we have invested strongly in Ukraine. However. Um, there are so many other conflicts where even less investments are made mm-hmm. um, in sub-Saharan Africa, across the Middle East, um, Afghanistan, the Rohingya refugees, and we, we cannot forget about them either. We have to stay on top of their needs as well. So you have to balance. Um, Your, yeah, it's very big balancing act. Oh, yes. We have to go to the most needed. Those are most needed. This is clear. That's not guiding compass. Well, I'm very interested in what drives you because you, first of all, show lots of courage. And I love, I love the way you're, you know, you say we're we're impatient because I think that's obviously um, a critical part of what you do is to just go where you need to go. And you personally do that. And I know, I mean, I looked, you know, I get some understanding of where you've been in the last few months and it's just mind-blowing how you travel to all these countries. You don't just sit at your desk and, and sort of do it from there. You're very hands-on. Tell me about how you yourself are driven and what it is that drives you to be in this space. Is there something historically for you or how you grew up, because it requires bravery. Since I was young, I, I never liked injustices. I always felt that I wanted to be of service. And I, I grew up with role models, you know. As I said, you know, my mother used to tell me, you know, the greatest you can do in life is to be of service to others. 
you know, everything else will follow. But don't don't go and look for, you know, money is the first goal in comfort for yourself. Look to serve others and then everything else will fall into place. I grew up with those sort of moral values and stuff. Mm. And, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. and Elsa Mandela. I mean, these were role models that I got to know early in life. The books in our bookshelves. And so I, I always felt um, that I wanted to be there for others. I grew up in Sweden. Of course, it's, it's a much more comfortable place to grow up in. So I think this starts very early in life in many ways. This value system you carry from home, you learn, you know, what is worth it to, to, to stand up for. And um, yeah, and I was also taught to speak up, speak <laughs> truth to power, and you yeah. shall have exercise. But to do it, you know, for a cause that is higher than yourself. And, and I have a very, I find that being of service to others is, brings a lot of happiness um, mm-hmm. to see other people being able to raise up from the ashes of what they have gone through and see them coming out strong with the resilience or, you know, see young children who, who have gone through a lot of traumatic experiences and then suddenly they are dear and smiling and they want to, to change the world and they have dreams. I find that such a precious, priceless joy. Maybe anything else is more exciting. And I, I like to challenge uh, what hurts you. It seems to me as if you're driven by that joy and that, that need to serve, but also you have a lot of strength from what I can see that you're working with because where does that internal strength come from? Is that something that do you think that that's learnt or do you think that's something that you have innately or is it a bit of both? It's probably a bit of both. Yeah, it's probably a combination of life. You know, you won't go through life and, and there are good times and there are bad times and it depends how you deal with the tougher times. But if you see them as an opportunity to learn and a neutral strength, you become strong. If you see them as a, oh, why eat them? Of course, it's weakening you. So I think that is one thing. And I, I also felt, and that was probably part of my upbringing, I felt that all of humanity is my business. I mean, I, 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 I need to do something for others. And, and I, I also have a very strong belief. And I don't want to, you know, uh, close myself to one religion as opposed to another. It's more a spiritual belief in the universe. I believe that, you know, do good onto others. And, and that brings joy to you yourself. I, I get a lot of strength from the children in the communities that we serve. When I see them, I say, wow, you are strong. I get strength from them. I have seen young people, children, communities that go through things that we can't even imagine. And then I see them coming out with this resilience and strength, and I'm just so humbled. And I say, wow, you are giving me strength. You are making me strong. So I have learned a lot from the people I've been working with communities and their families and their children, they they are actually the greatest teachers for us. I actually, that makes so much sense to me. And, and I can see that you, you actually, your passion, and I understand you're quite a spiritual person. You have, do you have hope and faith in the, you know, you see, as you've just outlined, a lot of um, reward when things, when, when suddenly these communities you know, can access education and they, they can go on the path that you hope they will. But are you hopeful and, and do you come from a place of faith? And I don't necessarily mean religion. I mean spiritual faith. 
pips and five. Yeah, I agree with you because if you, for me, my perspective is, if I were to go to religion, you start the exclusion. If you belong there, you belong there. But the spirituality is something we all have as, as human beings. And we have capacity for. So it definitely comes with spiritual faith. And I believe that there is a, there is a, there is a connection here somewhere, uh, however you define it. Uh, and uh, I believe the human, when human rights were created, that's inherent in the human nature, it came from the spiritual place. So definitely. And I, but I, I also, and I have hope because I, I do believe what you can conceive, you, you can achieve. If you can conceive a world where you have human rights, where you have um, healthy conflict resolution, I'm not saying that there will be no conflict. Of course, people will argue and it doesn't mean that you take out the bazookas and the, yeah. the you know, rockets. But so I believe it's possible because we can conceive it. It's anything up here we, we, we can feel possible. However, I think we are searching for solutions in the wrong places. We, we tend to divide the world in B and them, and we are, you know, the good ones that you know, sit in our big, um, you know, trying to save the world. And that's wrong. And I think Gandhi was right and he said, we want to change the world. We need to start with ourselves. And I think that the, the world as it is today is a reflection of ourselves, our attitudes. And I don't think we should underestimate the impact of ego and greed in the more um, socially acceptable leadership because they are the ones who go you know, absolutely. Sort of uneducated Bedouin in the desert that goes to war. Uh, it is it is educated people who have a strong ego and who want to solve things through conflict and, and military means. And you know, everyone wants power. I wrote a book called The Case for Humanity. I should not make uh, any ads for it, but it's on Amazon. But yeah. basically, I think we have to come to a point. Is going to make this happen is where we have to choose between what is your desire? Is your desire power? One will continue like this. But once we start developing a much finer and higher desire, the desire for humanity, I think it's possible. When it would take 8 billion people and certainly everyone in decision making to make that transformation of themselves. And I think we all should be working with ourselves as we go along. Well, the work that you're doing is certainly in that vein and certainly um, one of the standouts in terms of achieving that goal. But it sounds to me as also you you haven't, um, which I can imagine that it would be quite difficult not to get bogged down with some of the bureaucracy that goes with that, but your focus on education and making sure that you have that mission as your focus. And I know it's your focus is broad on many levels, but the education aspect, you really have I suppose in some ways I feel like you've nailed it. You guys have got a very good structure, strategy and plan and it seems to be working. Is that your impression that you're you're get you're making inroads? Yes, absolutely. I mean that was in Colombia um a couple of weeks ago and we have been investing there we started about three years ago and now when I came out I saw the results and that was mind blowing. And what were they? So so for exact can you anecdotally describe? Classrooms, uh, teachers are trained, uh, children are learning. We really have real learning outcomes. Um, the government is very, also very collaborative. And 
all organizations are working together without competition, you see a, a massive transformation. Uh, so it shows if you all come together mm. and you don't compete and you have funding, this is possible. So if they can do it, we can do it everywhere. And we have done it elsewhere as well. And I must also say, I think education cannot wait, which was, and I have to give credit to uh, the former prime minister of the UK, Gordon Brown, who is mm. the UN special envoy for global education, because he conceived this idea of education cannot wait. And, and he, he, was, he felt we need to move faster. There has to be less bureaucratic hurdles and more accountability towards those who serve. Um, and he conceived this whole idea, and it was established the World Humanitarian Summit, and I was appointed to be in this. Yes, you worked with him closely as a, yeah, very interesting. Tremendously um, enriching to work with, with such a visionary as as Gordon. Mm. And, and I think that is, is part of the, the reason that we've been able to move because we think alike. But then also, we have great strategic donor partners, great UN agencies like UNHR, World Food Program, UNICEF, UNESCO. Uh, we have many international NGOs like Save the Children, uh, World Vision, Plan International. Uh, Warshire, many others that we work with. Mm-hmm. And then we have ministers of education of these countries. And the, the structure is that they are part of the decision making. It's yeah. not as if they give us funding and then we report back by the end of the year. No, we speak to them on nearly a daily basis. We have two boards. And I think that has shown that the more inclusive you are, the more you bring everyone in. Because yeah. nobody wants to sit in their office in Northern Europe or North America and never feel that they're close to this ground. That is not going to give them the passion and stimulation so, and the drive. So they are with us. They travel with us. And they know what's going on. Everything is transparent. We're, it's, it's the sense of us together doing this. And I think that has broken down a lot of the redundant bureaucracy. Because you always need some bureaucracy when you deal with funding, especially. Of course, yeah. Yeah, for accountability and and things like that, of course, yeah. And I think maybe because I've also spent many years, almost 35 years in in the system, I think bureaucracy can be done less cumbersome, but still with a stronger accountability. I think that's a good point. Yeah, very important point. Yeah. The trade of it. Just like, okay, now we do it this way because it's more Mm -hmm. efficient. And everyone is with us on that. We, when we sit in our board meetings, there's an enormous passion and positive spirit in how we work. And that helps a lot. When you don't have naysayers or we can't do this or no, it's not possible. Everyone says, we can do it. Everyone, whether you are a government or you are a UN agency or a civil society. And not the, lo- the, 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 the local organizations and the children themselves. There is a positive energy that runs through a- education cannot wait. And, and I think that is something that's a good attitude. So, Well, on that wonderful note of hope, which, which I always think is critical in these sorts of areas and certainly something that I can see in both your energy and your mission and obviously your smile, um, I'd like to thank you so much for joining me 
on the Beyond Words Global Literacy Podcast. And I hope that we meet again and that we talk further about the extraordinary work that you're doing. And certainly hope we see improvements in the literacy space because there's a lot of people who care. And that's what's evident, including yourself. Well, and so do you. Um, so do the, all of you are involved in like World Literacy Summit and World Literacy Foundation. And all of them, it has been absolutely a pleasure. Very interesting to speak with you, Deborah. And I hope that we will be more someone make more chances to have a converse. Uh, well, I hope to be in New York in September for the, for the, uh, the UN <laughs> Assembly. So I'll come visit. We'll, we'll catch up then. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, and thank you to all the listeners. Thank you, everyone. Well, at the World Literacy Foundation, we believe in literacy as the foundation of lifelong learning and education. People who cannot read or write experience difficulties with simple everyday tasks such as reading the label of a medicine bottle, filling in a job application, or understanding a traffic sign. When we help someone to acquire literacy skills, we're empowering them to access to better opportunities in life to break the poverty cycle. It's a global organization in Africa, Latin America, the United States, the United Kingdom, and in Australia. The World Literacy Foundation is on a mission to ensure that every child, regardless of geographic location, has the opportunity to acquire literacy skills and books to reach their full potential. We're striving to eradicate illiteracy by 2040. Reading and writing should just be a basic right, not a privilege. So please, if you're interested, head to our website at the World Literacy Foundation to see what is happening globally this extraordinary organisation when we realise that there are 750 million people who cannot read and write. So see if you can contribute and make a difference. 